This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to Black History Unveiled with me, Amat Levine. The podcast where we spotlight pivotal moments, influential figures, and groundbreaking movements from black history from the continent to the diaspora. Sometimes people question why history is important. They might feel like history, especially black or African, has nothing to do with them. But the way we write and interpret historical events directly influences how we understand ourselves and our present time. Understanding history makes it easier to understand our world today. Before we start, I'd like to remind you that you can become a Patreon subscriber for as little as a dollar a month. As a subscriber, you get pictures and maps that make the episodes easier to visualize, get episodes completely free of advertising, and get extra bonus episodes. By doing so, you're also helping me making this podcast possible. All info can be found at patreon.com slash blackhistoryunveiled. Today's episode is about an East African kingdom that in the second century CE was described as one of the world's foremost powers, along with Rome, Persia, and China. A kingdom that erected grand monuments and whose coinage spread throughout the world. It was not only among the first in history to convert to Christianity. A couple of hundred years later, it may have played a decisive role in the survival of Islam as a religion. Today's episode is about Aksum.
Sometime in the first century CE, an unknown Greek writer sat down and wrote what is known in English as the Periplus of the Erythrean Sea, a guide to some of the most important trade routes of the time. The writer was probably a sailor because the writing is a first-person account and describes the ports, cities, and civilizations that were part of the trade, from North and East Africa to the Middle East, India, and China. The African part of the route began in Egypt. It went along the Red Sea towards present-day Somalia, where several thriving port cities dotted the coast. Cities like Mosilon, close to today's Bosaso, and Malau, probably in present-day Berbera. As ships rounded the Horn of Africa, they would reach upon. In this bustling marketplace, merchants traded myrrh and olibanum, which were used, among other things, in incense and perfume. They were highly sought after in the Roman Empire. Venturing further south, the port of Serapion beckoned, likely nestled in or near present-day Mogadishu. The journey then wove through the ivory-rich lands of today's Kenya, culminating in the city of Rapta, believed to have been found in the verdant landscapes of present-day Tanzania. I find this ancient narrative fascinating. It shatters the thoughts or illusion that people of the ancient world lived separated and isolated. That illusion has been especially true of Africa, a continent that well into the 20th century often was portrayed as this mysterious, unexplored place covered in darkness and shrouded in obscurity. But people have been on the move throughout the ages. We often underestimate how connected large parts of the world have been for thousands of years, and this, of course, also applies to Africa. In what is today's Sudan, for example, the local great power Kush had a complicated relationship with the Roman Empire. They started out as enemies, but soon developed a reasonably friendly relationship centered around trade. As early as about 60 CE, the Romans sent an expedition that was allowed to pass through Kush in their quest to find the source of the Nile. Present-day Kenya hosted a rare and massive Chinese trading expedition as early as the 15th century, and African explorers have visited the different parts of Asia for many centuries. The Periplus of the Erythrean Sea is thus a testament to the ingenuity of our ancestors, who harnessed the monsoon winds to traverse enormous distances. It's a document that serves as proof of the region's extremely old tradition of sophisticated trade, a glimpse into an ancient and relatively globalized world. One of the stops mentioned in the writing is Adulis, a busy port near the present-day small town of Zula in Eritrea. The city was right next to the Red Sea, one of the arteries of the ancient world, where merchant ships constantly crisscrossed. From the north, they came from Egypt, which at the time was a province of the Roman Empire, and from the southeast, the ships came all the way from Persia and India. A visitor disembarking in Adulis would be greeted by a hot and humid climate and a city of cosmopolitan character, 
a melting pot of traders from near and far. The visitor would have seen several mountain ridges on the horizon, gradually becoming more formidable and menacing. But if the visitor wanted to meet the region's rulers, that was precisely the direction it needed to head. The long and exhausting journey took between 8 and 12 days to complete. The traveler passed through several climate zones and an ever-increasing altitude. Several rivers meandered past and anyone traveling this route had to best numerous mountains of a dizzying amount of shapes. They also had to watch for the rich wildlife, including lions, hyenas, crocodiles, hippos, leopards and elephants. Along the way, several smaller communities were often located on so-called ambas, a characteristic landform in this region. An amba is basically a steep mountain with a large and flat top, which was well suited for both villages and farmland as they were so easy to defend. At last, and now the traveler was at about 2,100 meters or almost 7,000 feet, the power Adulis obeyed was reached, Aksum. The Persian religious leader Mani lived in the 3rd century CE and founded Maniachism, a now extinct religion. But it was one of the world's largest religions during its golden age. According to his followers, he described the world's four then foremost powers at one point. The Persian and the Roman empires were two of them. A third was Silius. It is not known where it was located, but a standard estimate is that Mani was referring to China. But the fourth kingdom Mani considered to belong amongst the world's foremost powerful was Aksum. Aksum still exists, but is today a fairly small town located in the Tigray region in northern Ethiopia. The area was inhabited long before, but from at least the 100s CE, Aksum functioned as the capital of a powerful kingdom with the same name. Although Aksum was the administrative and political center, Adulis played an essential role as a window to the larger world. From a Eurocentric point of view, Aksum was balancing on one of the edges of the known world, but from the country's perspective, it had a strategic and central position on the Red Sea. This position enabled the country to connect East with West, Asia with Africa and Europe. Harnessing this advantageous location, Aksum grew into a large and powerful trading nation. Ivory, animal skins, rhinoceros horns, tortoise shells, salt, emeralds, and incense were some of the goods shipped from Aksum's ports, while olive oil, iron, fabrics, and wine were among the items imported. Before Aksum, the region was ruled by another kingdom. Its name is written as D-MT, and I've heard it being pronounced as something like Damut or Diamat. It was probably formed in the 9th century BCE, 
but we still know very little about it. We do know that South Arabian traders had a long tradition of crossing the Red Sea, and there was therefore a South Arabian influence in this part of East Africa. In addition to religion, the South Arabians are thought to have impacted the language, writing, and architecture, but exactly how much has been debated over the years. In the past, Western historians believe that South Arabs invaded and ruled over this region or were the founders of so-called civilization here. But today, the common view is that the local population voluntarily adopted some aspects of South Arabian culture. Damut's capital was probably today's Yeha, a small village in Ethiopia's Tigray region. There you can still find what is estimated to be Ethiopia's oldest preserved building, the so-called Great Temple of Yeha. It was erected as early as the 700s BCE and was dedicated to the South Arabian god Al-Maka. The still surviving walls stretch 14 meters, or 46 feet, above the ground, and the temple has been preserved in surprisingly good condition, considering that the building's first stone was laid around 2,700 years ago. It is not entirely clear what caused Damot's downfall sometime in the 5th century BCE. However, several smaller societies and kingdoms filled the power vacuum that followed until Aksum emerged as the region's premier power in the 2nd century CE. Aksum's rise to power was marked by the absorption and incorporation of smaller kingdoms, which becomes apparent in the title of Aksum's ruler, Negusa Nagast, roughly King of Kings, a title used for Ethiopian emperors right up to Haile Selassie in the 1970s. This absorption likely occurred through both violent and peaceful means. In addition to Ethiopia and Eritrea, Aksum's borders came to include the southernmost parts of what is today Yemen on the other side of the Red Sea in the 4th century CE. Possibly, they also extended to parts of present-day Djibouti, Somalia, and Sudan. Still, the exact borders are fuzzy and varied over time. Aksum's official language was Giz one of the few indigenous African wooden languages. The oldest known example is a five and a half meter or 18 feet high obelisk in Matara, a small town in what is today Eritrea. It is dated to the early 4th century CE, and in addition to the carved Gez letters, a crescent moon is visible under either a sun or a star, symbols that refer to an ancient polytheistic religion from South Arabia. In Aksum, several so-called steles, obelisk-like constructions, were erected. Most, but not all, marked burial sites, many of which remain in the city of Aksum. They were often decorated with false doors and windows, and the largest and most detailed marked royal graves. 
The biggest of them, called Stele No. 1, is 33 meters or 108 feet high, weighs over 500 tons and is one of the most giant monoliths man has ever attempted to erect. It is believed to have broken off when they tried to get it in place and fell to the ground where it remains today. Perhaps the most prominent still-standing stele is the obelisk of Aksum, soaring to a height of approximately 24 meters or 79 feet above the ground. Erected in the early 4th century CE, its tail takes a dramatic twist as it was unearthed some 1,600 years later by Italian soldiers during Italy's occupation of Ethiopia in the 1930s. This stele had been toppled, fractured, and laid half-buried beneath the sands. There are several theories regarding the cause of its destruction. Some scholars and archaeologists proposed that an earthquake had caused it to fall. In contrast, others suggest that ancient looters inadvertently destabilized the ground in their quest for riches, leading to the monument tipping over. In 1937, the notorious Italian dictator Benito Mussolini ordered the remnants of the stele to be seized as war spoils. His soldiers loaded the colossal fragments onto trucks, transporting them to the coastal city of Masawa. From there, they were shipped to Naples before being moved to the Italian capital. In Rome, the obelisk was reconstructed and erected in Piazza di Porto Capena in front of the Ministry of Italian Africa, the building that today houses the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. After World War II, Italy agreed to return the monument to Ethiopia. However, decades would pass before this promise was fulfilled. Even as recently as 2004, Italy cited financial constraints and technical limitations as barriers to repatriation. However, in 2005, the obelisk was finally returned to Ethiopia after 68 years in Italy. It was meticulously reconstructed and unveiled in a grand ceremony on September 4, 2008. As mentioned earlier, several smaller steles still stand, continuing to tell their tales. Beginning in the 270s CE, Aksumites started minting their own coins in gold, silver, and copper, inscribing them in Gez or Greek, the latter being one of the most widespread languages among the Red Sea traders. These coins, often bearing the likeness of the reigning monarch, serve as invaluable historical artifacts, aiding in the reconstruction of the chronological order of Aksum's rulers. These treasures have been discovered in diverse locales, from Yemen, Egypt and Palestine, to Greece and India, attesting to the incredible reach of Aksum's trade networks. These early coins also bear the same religious symbols as those on the Matara obelisk. However, in the 4th century, a profound spiritual transformation ushered in the introduction of a new, widely recognized symbol.
In the ancient city of Tyre, in southern present-day Lebanon, a Christian man named Frumentius was born at the dawn of the 4th century. Together with his brother Edesius, he was on a boat trip along the Red Sea as a child when the ship capsized on the East African coast. There are slightly different versions of this story. In some versions, it is said that the vessel was seized and its crew killed when anchored in one of Aksum's ports. However, the brothers survived in all versions but were taken as prisoners. Their captor was none other than Ella Amida, the reigning monarch of Aksum. Rufinus of Aquileia, a Roman priest and historian who lived in the 4th century, is this story's primary and original source. It said he had it told to him by Edesius himself. According to the story, Frumentius and Edesius escaped the kind of treatment we might primarily associate with captivity. Instead, the king is said to have taken an interest in the brothers, and they won his trust. Edesius became the king's cupbearer, while Frumentius was entrusted with various vital positions within the royal household. In his book, Aksum, an African Civilization of Late Antiquity, the Irish archaeologist Stuart Munro Hay writes that Frumentius eventually came to function almost as a kind of secretary of state or finance minister. But he was still effectively a prisoner, or even enslaved, and it was only on Ella Amida's deathbed that the king granted total freedom to Frumentius and his brother. However, fate had more in store for them. The queen dowager, Sophia, implored the brothers to stay, entrusting them with the responsibility of educating her young son, Prince Zana. The prince was still too young to take over as regent. Thus, Frumentius emerged as Aksum's de facto deputy ruler, exercising substantial influence. During his tenure in the kingdom, Frumentius harnessed his growing authority to propagate the teachings of Christianity. He encouraged Christian traders in Aksum to openly practice their faith and initiated the conversion of the local population. As the time drew near for Prince Azana to assume the reins of governance, the brothers finally embarked on a new chapter of their lives, departing Aksum for Alexandria in Egypt. This ancient city, the birthplace of the Coptic Orthodox Church in the mid-first century, had become a vibrant haven for the burgeoning Christian community. While Edesius continued home to Tyre, Frumentius remained in Alexandria. He implored the church's bishop to send missionaries to Aksum to continue the spread of Christianity. Instead, Frumentius himself was ordained a bishop and entrusted with the task of carrying out the conversion. In the year 333, Frumentius came back to Aksum. There he succeeded in converting the young king, Azana. One can imagine that Frumentius had substantial influence over Azana, considering he had been by his side since the king was just a child. It likely facilitated the conversion. Together, Frumentius, or Abba Salama as he is known in the Ethiopian tradition, and Azana founded the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which still exists today and has 30 to 40 million followers.
It was also in the year 333 that Aksum, under Ezana's leadership, proclaimed Christianity as its state religion. The kingdom's coins, once adorned with the ancient symbols mentioned earlier, now bore the Christian cross, symbolizing this profound spiritual shift. Concurrently, the tradition of erecting the towering obelisks gradually waned, perhaps as a tangible reflection of this religious transformation. Besides the conversion, Ezana distinguished himself through his many wars of conquest. He also put down several revolts within his borders. He may have even played a role in the final decline of Kush, the once mighty power of Northeast Africa. With its conversion, Aksum earned its place as one of the earliest Christian nations in all of history, sharing this distinction with nations like Armenia and Georgia. In the wake of Frumentius' passing, the Coptic Orthodox Church of Egypt continued the tradition of appointing the bishop of the Ethiopian Church. This practice endured an extraordinary long period, right up until the 1950s. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But what makes Christianity in Aksum stand out is not just the early conversion. Within the folds of this Christian tradition resides a legend of monumental scale and profound significance. Even today, in the ancient city of Aksum, There stands a hallowed sanctuary known as the Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion, a place shrouded in mystique. 
The original edifice is believed to have been erected during the reign of King Ezana in the 4th century. It is believed to have been destroyed during a military conflict some 1,200 years later. The church has since been reconstructed and expanded. The most distinctive thing about the Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion is that it allegedly houses the Ark of the Covenant. The legendary wooden and gold chest, which, according to Christian tradition, is said to contain the stone tablets bearing God's commandments that Moses received on Mount Sinai, an object of immense religious importance. Throughout the ages, the fate of the Ark has been veiled in mystery. The Ark is said to have long been kept in Solomon's temple in Jerusalem, but after Babylonia conquered the city and destroyed the temple in 587 BC, opinions differ on what happened to it. Some believe it was hidden in a cave in Mount Nebo in Jordan, others that it was taken to Rome. Some believe it was destroyed along with the temple. There are hundreds of theories about the Ark's fate. One such theory is that it was brought to Ethiopia long before Jerusalem's fall. The Queen of Sheba is a historical figure mentioned in, among other things, the Bible and the Quran, and who ruled over the Kingdom of Sheba, which was located in today's Yemen. However, Ethiopian tradition paints a different picture, naming her Makeda and placing her reign over an Ethiopian realm. Some suggest a fusion of these accounts, wherein the dominion of the Queen of Sheba or Makeda spanned from the shores of Yemen to the highlands of Ethiopia. Or perhaps there were different Shebas, one in Yemen and one in Ethiopia. According to the Ethiopian national epic Kebran Agast from the early 14th century, Makeda bore a son to Solomon, the king of Israel, during her visit to Jerusalem. This son, best known as Menelik I, is said to have founded the Solomonic dynasty of Ethiopia as an adult. In the 9th century BC, tradition claims he brought the Ark of the Covenant to Ethiopia after he visited his father, King Solomon. The Ark then lay concealed for ages until it found a haven within the Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion. Remarkably, to this very day, the Church professes guardianship of the Ark. Notably, neither the leader of the Ethiopian Church nor the nation's rulers may gaze upon it. Only the vigilant monk appointed as its custodian holds that privilege. This unique tradition is said to have persisted for millennia. Upon the monk's passing, a successor is anointed, entrusted with the solemn duty of safeguarding the Ark until death. This story mixes history with mythology and religion, so discussing its veracity is beyond the scope of this podcast. For those interested in thoroughly exploring this story, I recommend Stuart Monroe Hayes' book, The Quest for the Ark of the Covenant, where he meticulously investigates all the facets of this fascinating story. Although Christianity was given the status of state religion in connection with King Azana's conversion, it took a long time for it to spread. This pattern may resonate with listeners familiar with the Mansa Musa and the Kingdom of Mali episode, 
where a similar dynamic played out, albeit with Islam. In both cases, royal figures were often the first to embrace the new faith, while the populace gradually followed suit. Furthermore, it was not uncommon for individuals to blend their beliefs, as evidenced by the archaeological findings in Aksum, where tombs have been discovered bearing both Christian and so-called pagan symbols and artifacts. At the end of the 4th century, Christianity started permeating the local population, largely thanks to a group known as the Nine Saints. Hailing from various Byzantine or Eastern Roman Empire regions, including present-day Syria and Turkey, these missionaries settled around Aksum. Their concerted efforts were instrumental in converting even the rural inhabitants. They translated Christian scriptures into Gez and founded a multitude of churches and monasteries. Some of these structures still stand today, more than 1,500 years later. Often perched high in the mountains, some are carved directly into the rock face, accessible only by foot. For instance, the Debredamo Monastery, founded in the 6th century, rests in isolation atop a mountain or amba, reachable only by ascending a 15-meter or 49-foot precipitous rock wall using a rope. Visitors can still marvel at some of these monasteries and churches' exquisite and ancient carvings and paintings. Check out the images I will be sharing on patreon.com slash blackhistoryunveiled. They truly offer a glimpse into the extraordinary. Across the Red Sea the kingdom of Himyar had risen to prominence in present-day Yemen. Here, a Jewish monarch named Du Nevas, also known as Yusuf Asar, had recently ascended to power and initiated a brutal oppression of the non-Jewish populace. Scores of Christians endured persecution and were killed under his rule, prompting King Caleb of Aksum to take action in defense of the Christian community around 520 CE. While there may have been additional motives for this invasion, such as economic considerations, King Caleb ultimately led Aksum to victory in the bloody war. He conquered Himyar, removed his tyrannical rival, and installed an obedient Christian regent. This narrative underscores the deep-rooted Christian tradition in the region. But Aksum also played a decisive role in the survival of the world's second-largest religion of today, Islam. The initial Muslims faced a formidable predicament. According to Muslim tradition, in the early 610s, receiving the first of God's revelations conveyed through the archangel Jibril, the Prophet Muhammad began preaching in Mecca. While historians debate the city's prominence at the time, it is commonly theorized that Mecca had long served as a pivotal trading hub in the Arabian Peninsula. When Muhammad began his preachings, 
Mecca was ruled by the powerful Quraysh clan. Many people in Mecca dismissed Muhammad's message, above all the wealthy merchants. Still, he gained a loyal following among the town poor. Among other things, he condemned idolatry and polytheism, religious traditions practiced by the Quraysh. As Muhammad's following grew, the Quraysh regarded him as a threat. They offered him titles and riches in exchange for renouncing his faith, but when he refused, he and his disciples endured persecution and violence. They needed a place of refuge. The choice fell on Aksum. The reasons were several. Partly, Aksum had garnered recognition in the region due to its periodic rule over the southern Arabian Peninsula. Additionally, it was known as the Christian Kingdom. The hope was that Aksum's ruler at the time, known as Najashi or Arma, would safeguard the Muslims in the name of monotheism. While they followed different religions, both groups worshipped a single god, or some would argue the same god, making them more aligned with each other than with the so-called pagans who could worship both objects, spirits, or a group of minor gods. Furthermore, Africans from the Aksum region were not uncommon in Mecca, often as traders, artisans, soldiers, or even as enslaved people. One example was Bilal ibn Raba, a former slave who became one of Muhammad's earliest followers in Islam's first muezzin, or prayer caller. According to Muslim tradition, Muhammad even had an East African nursemaid, the so-called Baraka bin Talaba, or Umm Ayman. In 615, a smaller group of Muslims crossed the waters to Aksum, with a larger group joining them the following year. Among these refugees was Muhammad's daughter, cousin, and future wife. When they stepped ashore, probably at Aksum's port of Adulis, they most likely became the first Muslims to set foot on African soil. Muhammad's premonition that his followers would be safe in Aksum proved well-founded. The king allowed them to stay. But enraged that they had managed to escape, the Quraysh reportedly dispatched emissaries to Aksum. These envoys attempted to persuade the king, using bribery and rumor-mongering, to surrender the fugitive Muslims. The king, resolute in his commitment to safeguarding them, refused. Around 622, one group of Muslims who had sought refuge in Aksum returned to the Arabian Peninsula, just in time to join Muhammad in his new base in the city of Medina, far from the oppression of Mecca. In 628, another group of Muslim refugees from Aksum followed suit. Yet, according to Muslim tradition, some Muslims chose to remain in Aksum, while others settled in Masawa, now in modern-day Eritrea. The Mosque of the Companions is mentioned as one of their remains. It is dated to the first decades of the 7th century and is considered perhaps Africa's oldest mosque. Others of the Muslims settled in Negash in today's Tigray region. There, they built the approximately equally ancient Al-Najashi Mosque, 
which still stands today and contains the tombs of Muhammad's early followers. What might have transpired had Aksum's king not offered protection to the Muslims can only be speculated about. It's not unreasonable to assume that this could have dealt a severe setback, if not a devastating blow, to the fledgling Muslim community. As a token of gratitude for Aksum's assistance, Muhammad is said to have advised his followers not to launch an offensive against Aksum. Who knows? Perhaps this contributed to the fact that Aksum remained unscathed during the early stages of the extensive Muslim conquests that swept across the Middle East and North Africa over the subsequent century. Nevertheless, Aksum's heyday was over for other reasons. Its decline had been well underway when it sheltered the Muslims, and it had actually commenced even earlier, following the abdication of King Caleb in the 6th century. His campaign in southern Yemen, mentioned earlier, although a significant victory for Christianity in the region, marked the onset of Aksum's decline as an empire. The invasion exacted a toll in terms of lives and resources. Because Aksum couldn't maintain direct control over southern Yemen, it missed the long-term strategic and economic benefits that could have otherwise followed. At the same time, the Sassanids, who ruled the Persian Empire, expanded westward, which is believed to have disrupted the traditional trade networks on which Aksum built its success. Consequently, Aksum withdrew from its position in the Red Sea and concentrated on retaining control over the Ethiopian highlands. Other factors contributing to Aksum's decline include climate shifts, deforestation, and soil degradation, which made it increasingly difficult to sustain a growing population. Regardless of the primary factor, Historical records suggest that the city of Aksum lost its status as the kingdom's capital by the middle of the 7th century. By the 9th century, the entire empire had fragmented into a collection of smaller villages and communities. According to local tradition, the final blow was delivered by an army led by a woman named Gudit, Yudit, or Yodit. Although there are various conflicting accounts of this event, she is often depicted as a non-Christian, possibly Jewish queen from a neighboring kingdom. In the mid-9th century, she is said to have set fire to several of Aksum's churches and books. Despite the kingdom's disintegration, Aksum's cultural influence persisted and continued to shape subsequent kingdoms in the region. As mentioned earlier, Aksum remains as an important city even today, particularly from a religious and symbolic standpoint. The kingdom was also far from the last Ethiopian state to make its mark in world history. We will have the opportunity to return to this region many times in the future. Thank you for joining me, Amat Levine, on this episode of Black History Unveiled. As one of the great powers of antiquity and with its pivotal role in the development of Christianity and Islam, Aksum deserves greater recognition. 
I hope this episode has contributed in some small way to raising awareness of this remarkable land. If you've listened this far and liked what you've heard, check out patreon.com slash blackhistoryunveiled to gain access to ad-free episodes, maps and pictures, bonus episodes, and more. You'll also find a comprehensive list of sources for this episode. If you don't want to become a Patreon subscriber, another way to help me is to share the podcast on social media, recommend it to someone you know, or give it a rating or a review on the podcast app of your choice. In the next main episode, we'll explore what is commonly known as the greatest slave rebellion in history, the Haitian Revolution. I'll see you guys then. Peace. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.